You're gonna dig this. The Fly Fidelity Podcast is the solution. It's the best. Check it out. You wanna get super flat, flat. Details just ahead. Do you love credible content, but, but, but hate how long you have to wait? And who wants super thick and frothy dumpster juice with rat corpses in it? There's a better way. Fly Fidelity. Fly Fidelity. Fly Fidelity. Fly Fidelity. Fly. Fly. Fly Fidelity. Fidelity. Fly Fidelity Podcast. Fly Fidelity, baby. Fidelity, baby. Fidelity. With your host, Luke Bailey. Welcome to the program. This week, part one of a two-part podcast featuring Raleigh Shabazz, formerly known as Miranda Jane, known as one of the original founding senior editors of Complex and A&R in Rad Villainy. We'll be talking about her journey coming up in LA and editing a source magazine, as well as managing MF Doom and so much more on this episode. Devil's bleeding, leaving these stitches, sleeping with the fish-eyed heathens, stringing them up, now we first stringing like Willie Beemans, odds and evens, rhymes and reasons, winter, spring, summer, fall, and earth of all, freaking nature's like fifth season, born with the ability to speak about the womb grown, prophecies of predictions, full moon blown, on a great eight, New York City skyline, look like a silhouette of giant tombstones, eternally marked, final resting place of fake gold and fool's bones, to that fateful day we got the next school sewn, with common threads, golden line pharmaceuticals, mechanics that's irrefutable, immovable and immutable, like sweet signs of pugilism at the same moment. Both brutal and beautiful, unusual suspects come to combine the divine with the subhuman. Sublime communion, e plur of a spoonum. Next time, find me communicating with Fidel Castro when we're smoking new ports to smoking Cubans. He's the ruler of day and night up under moonlight. Under the moonlight. He's so divine. He's the ruler of day and night up under moonlight. You've been pretty successful in various, very different disciplines throughout your 36-year career. I'm curious as to what in your upbringing, what is it that enabled you to think like that? Well, I was born into the record industry, first of all, because my father was um, a pretty renowned jazz player. Buell Nylinger is his name, a jazz bassist. Um, and he pivoted to becoming a studio musician. And so most of my childhood was spent either being watched by the receptionist at a recording studio while he was doing sessions or attending rehearsals if he was playing with a philharmonic or a band or even sometimes going to concerts and festivals where he would be performing and just in general um, seeing every aspect of the work side of being a recording artist and a musician from a very, very young age um, because he always worked. And when he and my mother separated, I was about five years old and he had custody of my brother and I on the weekends. So he never had days off. He didn't take weekends off. He never took time off. And he was very much a workaholic and a working musician who worked nights and weekends and almost all day every day 
And that was, I would say, instilled in me from a child. And also that, you know, within my family, it was not a hobby or something that you did just in the evening or just on Saturday and Sunday. It was the lifeblood and the backbone of the family, not just financially, but also just the work ethic that my father had as a jazz musician, as a session player, as a classical musician, as a conductor, um, and as someone who did piece work um, in recording studios, he literally made sure to always have something cooking. And there was never really a quiet moment, except maybe listening back to something or listening to like the Thelonious Monk versions of songs that he and his band would be recording or sessioning or playing so that he could kind of absorb the original version and then take it to the band or take it to the stage or take it to the studio. And so even listening to music was not folly. It wasn't a break time. It wasn't in most families, I would think, a time where a whole family spends listening to jazz or something like that would probably be a relaxing time, a weekend or music that you would listen to while your mom is cooking dinner or something like that. But in my family, even the listening time was work. There was never not work. And so from his side, um, it's something that I absorbed from a very tiny child. And then also on my mother's side, both my grandfather and my uncle were union organizers and attorneys for um, workers unions of, of various types. Um, and so in the same vein, time spent with my mother's side of the family in the evenings, in the morning before going to an office, in the weekend times when all the cousins and myself and my brother would all come gather at my grandfather's house to swim or to have a barbecue or to, for us to relax, he always would be working. My uncle always would be working. If they weren't working in their office, they were working at home. If they weren't on a phone call doing labor organization, they were looking at a law book or working on something for what was gonna happen on Monday. So the same, exact same way as my father, my grandfather, um, as well as my uncle, they definitely instilled a work ethic into me that definitely most girls probably would not have even one person in their family exhibiting this type of work ethic or what some people would call being a workaholic. For me, it was constant. It was on both sides of the family. It was something that I never escaped. And also I watched my mother, my auntie who had my four boy cousins and my other auntie who had no children, their lives were a lot more simple and they didn't seem as fulfilled as the men. They didn't seem as happy. They didn't seem to have appointed interests. They didn't seem other than children for the ones, my mother and, and her sister who had children you know, that was pretty much their only mission in life was raising children and 
keeping the household going. And other than that, they kind of seemed to just be floating by. And it was something for me that I started working at a very young age um, at a yogurt shop because I had my, my father said that I had to have a job if I wanted to have a car. And I also started working in music at the age of 13. Um, and so I always worked since then. I've never had a vacation as an adult. I've never had a vacation or a, I don't normally take days off or holidays. I usually work more when other people are having a holiday. I usually work more in the weekend when other people are relaxing and spending family time. And that's how it all started, Luke. Being the daughter of parents who were both, as you said, very much prolific musicians, jazz musicians, what would have been the moment that you recognized the cultural significance of what it was they were doing? Well, I think for me, when I had the, the real awakening about the importance of my father and the genre crossing that he was doing was when I was a bit older and I became a Prince fanatic, just like a, the biggest fan ever of Prince mm. at, my young, at my young age. And one day I was at my father's house during the weekend and he had asked me to be kind of the door monitor because it was a big rehearsal and a big session of many different musicians of all stripes coming. And he didn't want to have to keep, you know, opening door for different uh, different musicians and at my father's house there was a very very high staircase that you had to come up with your instruments to get into the main part of the house so I had opened the door a number of times during the day and you know I've recognized some of the musicians as being you know important jazz players that I had seen him rehearse with before that I knew by name and knew you know that they were the ones that people really came out to see at concerts and you know, some of them I, I already knew were a big deal, but mostly in jazz. And then I opened the door and it was um, Mr. Mulvoyne, who I had seen before, a musician who worked somewhat frequently with my father, but he had his daughter with him. And his daughter is Wendy Mulvoyne from Wendy and Lisa, which are members of Prince's band. And wow. so when I opened the door and I saw that it was Wendy there, I was one of the first times I can ever remember being in any way starstruck or thinking to myself, oh my goodness, I can't believe it's, you know, she's going to leave here and go play with Prince or she's going to go tomorrow. She'll see Prince and she's shaking my hand and she's hugging me and she's introducing herself. And that means tomorrow right. she's going to take to him, shake Prince's hand or hug Prince. Or she might <laughs> say, oh, I saw, I saw, um, you know, Bill's daughter and she was she was asking about your music and when is our album and when is our concert? And I thought maybe she would transmit our conversation to Prince, which probably was such a silly thing for, I'm sure she did not do that, but it made me realize like the significance of all of these different genres of music and the importance. And then another one was uh, my father took me to the recording studio. My brother, um, wasn't feeling well or he went to a friend's I don't remember exactly the reason why he wasn't with us because normally I would be dropped off with the studio receptionist with my brother and I would sit and kind of babysit my brother who was prone to wanting to run around and do a bunch of different things and we had to be very quiet obviously at the recording studio but on this day I remember being on the couch alone and my father went into the studio room where he was working and I kept hearing these great songs and parts of songs coming from another room. 
And Quincy Jones walked out. And I knew Mr. Jones because my father recorded with him early in his career. And I, I knew of him and I knew him personally. And he was actually mixing a Michael Jackson album. Wow. So as a very small child, I sat on a you know studio couch almost all day and heard what would become off the wall. And I got wow. to hear it in all its different stages and all the different parts because I must have sit, sat there at least 10 hours, if maybe longer. Um, and the whole day, Mr. Jones was there mixing and, and you know, um, putting together the songs in the way that they would eventually be arranged. And I had no idea what it was or because at that time, we didn't know of Michael Jackson really that much. I mean, of course, people knew of the Jackson 5 and I knew the voice seemed familiar, but I was a child. Oh. Um, but then, you know, a months later, when those songs started to hit the radio, I said, oh, I was sitting there in the studio while while Quincy Jones was was there working um, on those Michael Jackson records. And now they're huge on the radio and it's like this sensation. And then Thriller, you know, also became so huge. And it made me realize, well, at the same time, Quincy Jones was there in one studio room. My father was in the room next to it doing a record as well or doing a session for a TV show as well. And it made me realize, you know, that this is very um, important music that my father is is creating and recording. And um, this is music that is in movies and on TV shows. And even though it may not be uh, necessarily in the genre of music that I listened to, which was hip hop since a child, it was still very, very important for what it was. Now, you mentioned your dad encouraging you to get a job to pay for your car. Were you encouraged to pursue a career in a music industry specifically, or was that something that you were discouraged to enter? Yes, I was discouraged. Um, I had to work at a frozen yogurt shop, which ironically set the set the way that I would enter into the music industry against my father's wishes because it was there on Sunset Boulevard right in the heart of Hollywood and one of my neighbors growing up was Ice-T and Darlene and also Evil E from Rob Syndicate lived down across the street from my elementary school as well as many many other recording artists but in terms of hip-hop I would see Ice-T and Darlene drive by in the Maserati or the Ferrari and you know, I would see Evil E and all these different Benzes and I loved their music and Six in the Morning was, you know, a huge song that I loved. And uh, I was a big fan of Ice-T and Rhyme Syndicate. And they used to come into the yoga shop all the time and they would leave me the best tips and they always had a nice conversation for me. And when they pulled in, I could always see the luxury cars and, um, you know, I just was very like, impressed always by them, especially Ice-T and Evil E. And I had a chance, um, I've been singing and writing songs since a very young child, since I was maybe five years old. And my father did force um, piano lessons. And uh, my stepmother actually was my piano teacher. Uh, at that time, my father had become a professor at the University of CalArts. Um, and my stepmother was one of his students. They ended up becoming married. She was very young, um, only 10 years older. than. What year is this? This is the 80s um, when he taught there. Uh, he and my mother separated, I believe, in 88 or 89. I believe by maybe maybe 1990, he was living with my stepmother and, and married with her. And they were a student and teacher or student and professor, I should say. Um, Got it. And then... So I'm born in 74 and in 1986 and 87, 
I was um, singing at school. I went to a performing arts school called Los Angeles Center for Enriched Studies. Um, and a lot of musicians have come from LACES. Um, the Jazzy Fat Nasties uh, were there and just a number of all different types of entertainers or their children. I, I schooled with Shaka Khan's daughter. Um, Leonardo DiCaprio uh, was one of my schoolmates there at LACES. Um, she will wow. speak more, more about him later, but um, I had, my voice had become pretty well known. Um, and then also the fact that I was writing songs and just um, coming from this family of basically like, you know, musical royalty, if you will, that you know, I had eyes on me and I had ears on me. I was dancing semi-professionally, um, attending Dupre Dance Academy and also dancing um, at LACES. I was part of the dance team and I took choreography classes and dance classes and I was in the choir um, and I was singled out, you know, to give some solos and I performed a lot with the choir. Um, mostly we performed at church venues, um, but sometimes performed at school. And my voice was getting known. Um, and I had a, a chance to record a demo with Motown. Um, and basically, it's kind of similar to a record deal where they they put it up an allotment of money and pay for your studio time and pay for your time as a singer and a songwriter. Um, not all singers also songwrite, but you know, for them, that was part of the bonus. Um, and also, they'd had big, big success with Tina Marie. Um, and she also was kind of like a racially ambiguous or possibly white woman. Um, it, most right. people say that she had Native American heritage, um, but I'm Eurasian and I, um, you know, Motown wanted to market me as the next Tina Marie, if you will. And it was funny because I actually um, ended up going to the same high school as she graduated from Venice High. She graduated in 74, which is the year I was born. So when I had the demo deal offer at Motown, um, you know, that's how they were thinking was that we would do a couple songs and they would market me as this, you know, younger, hipper. Um, and ironically, the music that I was starting to do was really what Mary J. Blige ended up doing, what Erica Badu ended up doing. I was doing that way ahead. I was making pause tapes off KDAY 1580 LA and oh, wow. catching just the parts that had beats. And I was writing and singing over breakbeats. Now, Motown for the demo deal hadn't heard that stuff yet, but they they thought the vein that I was doing and the background that I came from as having, you know, cousins who were famous graffiti artists and me um, being a little bit of a B-girl and having a little bit of graffiti experience myself and um, just being very, very embroiled in hip hop. I think that they knew that that was going to be like a kind of a way to open a door for them to get into some like hip hop adjacent uh, places where they hadn't been before at that time. Unfortunately, my mother wanted me to go forward with it. She wanted me to be happy. She wanted me to just try my hands and I really wanted to do it. And my father refused to sign the papers. He said he didn't want me to be in the music business. Um, and we even went so far as to uh, try to have a judge do an emancipation that's what it's called here in America which would have allowed me as a young teenager to act as an adult in terms of signing a legal contract um but they did not allow that and I was not allowed to move forward and I was very crushed at the time um and so 
at that time, I was also involved in gangs in Los Angeles um, as a very young girl. I believe I started right around when I was 12. So this Motown stuff all happened right around 13 and 14. And when it all fell apart, I just really embraced the streets. I felt, you know, that my family didn't really want me and that they didn't have any interest in me being happy or successful in what I wanted to do. And that I was just going to be relegated. And, you know, my father was very um, abusive towards pretty much all women, but towards me as his daughter, he often told me that I was stupid and that, um, you know, that women's basically only use was to get married to someone and there was no sense in me trying to become a star or even to be educated really past high school because he felt like it was a waste of his resources and his money. Um, and he used that power that he had with that Motown situation to try to stop me. So I really embraced the gang life much more so after that. And I, I spent most of the time in the street when I wasn't, I rarely went to school. I went to school some of the time, but most of the time I would gather at school and then ditch and go do crime or whatever it was that I was doing. And um, I was always out. I would sneak out of the house every night and go down to Hollywood Boulevard or Sunset. And I would always see Ice-T and Bronx style Bob. And there was a club that they had going called Water of the Bush. Um, and since I was always out there, and they kind of probably knew my face by that time from living in the same neighborhood and from uh, working at that yogurt place I talked about where they used to always come in. Right. They um, asked me, you know, they said, well, you're out here all the time. Why don't you pass out these flyers, give these flyers to, you know, pretty women and people who look like they would, you know, fuck with hip hop music and people who would want to come through into the club. So in my very early teens, um, and again, this is 87, no later than, uh, no later mm. than 88. Yeah, 87, no later than 88. Um, I started doing a little street team for them. And then once I got the hang of that and I was already doing graffiti and spray painting and, you know, tagging and stuff like that, I already had, you know, the cans and the markers and I already had this mentality of like hanging from a pole to put up a tag or going with my people to go paint on the freeway signs at night and going in really dangerous territory and hanging from a freeway, um, you know, a, a abutment or what, or a sign or just taking really dangerous chances to do graph. And so it was kind of natural for me to do the street team stuff because especially once I realized like, Hey, I can cut a stencil and spray paint this logo for this band, or I can climb high onto the telephone pole and slap up a sticker or whatever it was. And so it kind of naturally led me into street marketing. And then I met other people who were out doing that. Most of them also in LA came from a, a graffiti background and or a gang background like I did. So, you know, it just kind of led me in that path anyway. And I ended up being behind the scenes. And almost ever since, for the most part, I've been behind the scenes and I've done everything from street promotions to guerrilla marketing to radio promotion. And I've worked at major labels too, not just major indies. My, my positions that I've held have been at major indies and I've been mostly the general manager or vice president, which is unheard of for women really. And for me to mm. have done it three or four times is really record breaking. Like there are no women that have done all of these different um, high level things that I've done. There are some that have been high level editors. There are some that have been high 
high up in the music industry, but never a general manager, never a vice president, not in, not an independent, not in hip hop. Um, and so off, you know, off of, um, for some reason, I've never actually been employed by a major, but I've interned at Priority Records, Artist Direct, Warner Brothers, Warner Music, Jive, just so many uh, majors that I actually worked as an intern or as a consultant. And so I kind of saw from those jobs what the difference was between independent and between major and how you know, just the decision-making process that you would go through at a major kind of turned me off of it. Um, and I just ended up always, you know, always in the independent side. And because of that, I've still worn so many hats and I'm 49 years old. I'm still doing street. I just, right now I'm doing street and guerrilla marketing for a client. Um, and I think a lot of people have forgotten what it is and forgotten how to do it. They're marketing everything online. I've been out in the streets the yeah. last week. I've been to, um, you know, a million different shops and I've, you know, been putting up posters and I've been slapping up stickers and I've been putting flyers out. And, you know, it's something that I still love to do. And, you know, if this client continues past a month, I'll probably get out the stencils and the razors and the spray cans. And if I have to get some tickets or some misdemeanor charges, so be it. Cause I miss painting and I miss guerrilla marketing and I love it all. I still love to do it even to this day. <laughs> when you think about those foundational moments, whether that's Make it a name for yourself as a writer back then, promoting yourself or promoting Ice-T, promoting Rhyme Syndicate in the beginning. How did growing up in Los Angeles frame your understanding of culture and promotion? Well, I think that um, growing up in L.A., the way that the city is spread out kind of made it so it was different than New York in that pretty much every borough had its own hip hop culture and its own relevant moments and its own artists and its own ways of doing the different elements. But in LA, it was more so that when there were clubs like Radiotron or Uncle Jam's Army or Water the Bush or later Unity, um, which Big B organized, rest in peace, Big B, um, we all gathered everyone who was a graffiti writer, a DJ, an MC, a B-girl or B-boy, or even just fans of the music and the culture and the art. In LA, we gathered. We would come from far and wide, from the suburbs, from the west side to the valley to everywhere. So we would see these same people and these same faces over and over because we were all gathering at the same spots. It was a much bigger deal. And especially if the, if there were artists coming out, like when they did Fresh Fest, I wasn't actually allowed to go. It was Run DMC and I believe NWA and Beastie Boys and all my boy cousins went. It turned into a riot and I wasn't allowed to go because I was still a little young and I was a girl. And I think my cousins didn't want to watch me. Um, and so I was told I had to stay home and it actually turned into a riot. So it probably was a good idea that I wasn't allowed to go as a little girl. Right. But those kind of things were such a huge deal that, yeah. you know, they were few and far between. And it wasn't like kids growing up in New York. It was like, this is the big thing that's happening in Los Angeles or in Southern California, even if there was something happening in San Diego or even to an extent things up here in the Bay Area. Um, I started coming up here when I was 17 
And then I started collaging here when I was 18. Um, and it was the same thing. I would still see some of the same faces. And even still to this day, like the, um, Larry June and Alchemist are coming to Oakland, which is where I am for the summer. And I have had a few people from LA reach me and say, you know, I'm probably going to come up, probably going to drive up or fly up for that Larry June and Alchemist show um, because Alchemist is also doing a DJ set at a different club after the show. And I think that, so really, I mean, California, you know, it's a 45 minute flight from LA to the Bay and it's about a five hour drive, but it's still that way to this day. EPMD performed the other day and everybody was posting the flyer for this EPMD show. And I said to myself, well, if there's any way I can get down to LA, I really would really like to see EPMD live one time. Like that would be amazing, you know? And so I I think that that that's very rare in other places, like in other states and, and especially, you know, on the East coast, like there would be something big happening in the Bronx. And so for the most part, you know, young people in the Bronx who are growing up on hip hop, especially, you know, in the eighties, they weren't really that pressed to go to Brooklyn or to go to Manhattan for a particular show or for a particular scene because they had their own scene and they, and, and whatever was happening in the other boroughs, the same or better was probably happening if you lived in the Bronx or in Brooklyn or even Harlem, you know, you were, you had, um, you had access to it right there without traveling. And the only people who probably were traveling, if at all, were like people, kids in upstate and in Buffalo, but even they probably wouldn't make the same kind of trek that we would in California or that we still do to this day. Like if there's something big happening and it's in LA and it's not going to come to the Bay, for the most part, people are willing to troop and drive five or six hours or take a flight or even take a train or, you know, by any means necessary, get to that show. And it was like that in LA, some places being an hour and a half drive or an hour drive really from one far point of LA to the very far point of the other side of LA County with traffic, it could easily take you 90 minutes. And we never even thought twice about it. You never thought twice about stealing your parents' car at night. Or <laughs> I had, I used to make a lot of money because I was involved in street shit. So I would have, you know, $100 bills tucked away in my drawer. And if there sure. was something going on that I really wanted to go to, I would call a yellow cab and spend $100 in a yellow cab if I wanted to, to get to a show and maybe have a friend bring me back home in the morning and pretend like I had slept the night in home and then go to school on the bus the next morning. Like I did that frequently and constantly um, as a very, very young, I should not have been out in the streets, girl, but I was out in the streets. Let's drop some bass to make the wall shake and vibrate the floor. Just like an earthquake, King T is back again, but with a new topic. I went and listened to Close to This Toxic, a new format, complete with a tool, even though I transform. I stay cool for me to get taken. How would you figure it? Right off the bat, if you thought you would be ignorant. I'm just stupid, I'm cold dumb. I play lead vocals, who plays drums, Keith does cuts, suckers get torn, but I gotta break. I think that 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 unity in LA um, is something that we had in a way where you know, it even crossed genres that you would see like a cadre of the hip hop kids 
sometimes at punk rock shows and my mother was into punk rock shows and she used to take us when we were very young. And sometimes I still went and we would just go to all different. Sometimes they had these like hip hop raves and they would have like house music and what y'all would call garage and that kind of stuff. So different rooms and there would be like one room for trance and one room for house. And then there would be a hip hop room. So I would see like the weirdest groups of people at those kind of events. But my core, like people that I painted graffiti with or people that I break dance with or people that I was in gangs with, they would come to those hip hop raves mostly because we were there for dancing and we were there for the music. And usually our DJs would get booked to play those rooms at those kind of parties. And then also a lot of us sold drugs and some people used them. And it was a great place to meet customers and a great place to serve and make money because mm. the house kids and the, and the people coming for the electronic and the dance music typically wanted whatever it was we had for sale, whether it was, you know, weed, marijuana, or they wanted some kind of the early, early versions of what ecstasy became or what basically anything we had, acid, whatever they just wanted to buy. And so it became a thing of like, we would go to dance, but then also, you know, we would make money and you would see this same like crew of hip hop people at the weirdest places where you would never expect. <laughs> but it was because we were so tough like that. We anything that was happening, Long Beach or other counties, Orange County, Santa Ana, Anaheim, like they had their own little pockets of, you know, people doing hip hop culture and music there, too. But anything we would hear about anything we would hear about whether someone was performing or there was going to be a cypher for dancing or for emceeing or if there was going to be any kind of battle or if there was going to be like a graffiti event in the day and then the nighttime was going to turn into some kind of party we would go to great lengths to show up there from all the different parts of LA where we lived and I've never seen anything like that in another state before. You moved from L.A. to the Bay right in the middle of somewhat of a renaissance, not long after a time when rappers had been struggling for a distinct identity in the Bay. Who were some of the earliest artists from the Bay that influenced your work ethic and changed the way you approach marketing and promotion? Uh, well, I came here to live in 1992, and I didn't know hieroglyphics personally yet. And oddly enough, the group and crew that got me involved in working in the Bay Area was Bootcamp Click, in particular, Black Moon and Smith and Wesson. Mm. My friend who I went to college with, she had gone randomly to the warehouse, which was a record store here in those days. This was in 93 uh, or maybe late night. It could have been summer 92. So we were in college together. We lived in the dorms together. And she contacted me and she was like, do you know some guy named Evil D? And I was like, oh, yeah, he's amazing. Like the, he's with this great crew and they have these dope artists and like Black Moon. And I told her the song and she was like, oh, OK, OK. She's like, Cause I went record shopping and then they were having some in-store thing. And I talked to him and got his phone number and they want us to meet up with them. And so me and her and another one of our um, homegirls from the dorm, we ended up going to their um, concert and we went to their hotel and hung out with them and we took them to eat and basically like, like took, kept them the whole time they were here in the Bay till we brought them to their radio. We brought them back to their hotel. We brought them to eat. We took them to the weed spot, just every and anywhere. We basically were like 
became like the road management of taking them all around the bay for that time that they were here. And it formed nice. like a, yeah, it formed like this, you know, connection with us and, and between us. Um, and it kind of made me realize that like, there was a big gap for things like that in the Bay area. We were in San Francisco at the time. I hadn't yet come to the East Bay area to Oakland and Berkeley yet. Um, but I started thinking to myself, like the kind of stuff that I was doing in LA with promotions and street team and stuff like that, it could become really valuable here for, for situations like that, where the fellas come for a couple of days and they have a concert book, but not much else. Maybe I could set up retail in stores or maybe ahead of them coming out I could have their label send me, you know, some flats and album covers and promotional materials. And I could just, you know, even go on the bus and drop them off at all the different record stores. Cause I had a lot of record stores here in the Bay. And I thought, you know, this would be a way for me to like, kind of get to work out here and get to know all the people at the shops and maybe set up some stuff and maybe set up some radio interviews and just see what I could do with that. But so it mostly actually came from New York and then doing that kind of work and keeping in touch with um with Evil D and Black Moon and Druha and everybody, you know, Smith and West and all those, the cats, I did keep in touch with them. And still I'm very close friends to this day with, you know, Evil D and his brother. And I keep in touch with Steel and Tech sometimes. And, you know, I, they, they kind of have been like in and out of when I lived yeah. in New York. Of course, I, I involved them anytime I could when I was at magazines because they're, they're just so dope. And I tried to always you know, do anything I could to keep them, uh, keep them relevant and keep them mentioned and keep their music and their name out there, especially for Smith and Wesson when they had that unfortunate situation with losing their name for a long time right. and they had to become Coco brothers and, you know, it made it hard. But then all of these things that I had started to do was really based off that one weekend with, um, with the whole team there at Duck Down. And then when I, um, Met the cast from Hieroglyphics, same same girlfriend, um, my my dorm mate. She met Domino, and she didn't really know exactly what was going on with Hiro, or you know, she didn't really know that much about music. It's just that she met him, and they kept in touch and started talking and seeing one another. And then from there, she invited me. Um, over to a, a little party or something at his house. And I met a plus and I knew who he was. You know, I knew already 93 till infinity and I knew the videos and I knew the songs and I knew their music. And then of course I knew Dell and already was a fan. Um, and so, you know, we, we connected and um, I ended up moving to Oakland and living right like maybe five minutes from a plus for years. And then I moved house and ended up living on the same street as him, literally two blocks on the same street from him. And then mystic, um, the woman rapper who was around in that era, um, she's still around too, but she at that time was like get very known. And he produced some records on some uh, records on her album, right. uh, which was called cuts for Lux scars for freedom. She was also our neighbor. So she was a plus neighbor across the street. And then I was incredible album, by the way amazing record and she is incredible and she has actually recently put out some new uh some new music and she's also a member of digital underground which some people might not know but um wow. yeah so i got i got really a a very strong friendship with hieroglyphics members way before i ever did any work 
for them. And ironically, I've never actually worked for Hiro. Um, I've done a little work for Souls of Mischief here and there as a consultant. I've written bios and press releases and basically just, you know, helped the fellas out. But because they're my friends and um, because I've known them so long and I've been a private chef for them and done events and cooking for both like personal events and um, professional ones, the first Hiro day. I catered the green room um, and I've worked for Tajay for Clear Label, which is a separate company, uh, but of course, Hiro affiliated uh, since 2009. And we're still That's rocking. Right. He, um, he, we just had the 18th anniversary um, of the label actually. Um, and we still do a lot of work together and um, Clear Label is like a multi-genre media company and it's not just music. It's just a lot of different forms of entertainment and merchandise that we do manufacturing and distribution and, We've at one point had, I think, like over 25 artists um, signed up to the label, and most of them were like from very different genres. We had rock and punk and uh, kind of jazz, uh, an acoustic player. Um, we had some like gangster rap from the Bay, and then, of course, some underground hip hop, Deep Rooted, and, and Mr. Brady's uh, and Joe Haas were affiliated with Clear Label with us, and a different, um, some singers. This one guy called Baby James, who had like a Motown sound. He's very, very dope. And Tajay has a great ear, and I'm known well for AR and for choosing artists and music. And, you know, we've been able to just kind of keep rocking on a very independent level. Um, but that's not Hyro. It's a whole separate company. And of course, it's very affiliated. Um, but, you know, my main mission with, with Hieroglyphics, the same as what I just said about Duck Down, is, you know, Hyro at one point all had these major deals. When I first met them, they had these major record deals and I would see them mm -hmm. all over the country. Wherever I moved to, their label was bringing them out to do an interview or to perform or to do radio, or they still had these like major, major funding for videos and all this stuff. And then that fell apart for them and they rallied and they built an independent label and company. And while that was happening, anytime I was in a position, whether I was interning at a major or if I were at a magazine or if I were freelancing for a magazine, I remember being up at the source and Hiro was about to drop a huge record. And I had to argue in the meeting, the Monday meeting at the editorial meeting at the source, I had to stand up and yell and cuss and threaten people and throw shit and get real mad because they didn't think that it was important to include Hiro in the source. And I just couldn't believe that, that they didn't, you know, but it's partially because, you know, a lot of people don't really realize, but magazines like that, if there's no way for them to get a paid advertisement, they don't really check that hard for the groups or for the albums, or, you know, they might give a little mention here and there, but for the most part, the mainstream magazines, like, especially back in those days, yeah. if it's not a major or there's not like a big one stop, who's going to be paying for an ad, they don't care. And that's what I learned. And I fought and I got Hiro um, the top place in the column that I had, which was a column about underground stuff. And I got him the biggest article that I had available to me, but it wasn't even really a full page. It was like kind of a full page, like with a little sidebar of an ad. And then all the other artists in, in that column that month maybe had like a quarter of a page or a half a page. But Domino was mad at me. He felt that I didn't do enough and he felt that I di didn't give enough and that there wasn't enough space utilized for them and that it should have been bigger or that they should have been considered for a cover. And I totally agree. And I don't think that that he or the cat or the guys really would realize like that I was 
basically putting my job on the line, like telling these people like, yo, if, you know, Hyrule has this big album drop, if they're not included in this issue, then I'll just go home and not come back to work here because you guys are full of shit calling yourself the Bible of hip hop and shit. And you, you're poo-pooing this huge independent release that's going to be like major, you know, and I had to really like actually threaten to leave to even get them in my little tiny column. So, you know, little stuff like that. (laughs) It's crazy thinking about it now, but there was a time when for years, I guess, no rapper, no label, no show or network was bigger than the source. Being on the staff at the source meetings back then, was it often where you had situations like the situation you've just mentioned where the source acted, I guess, biased regionally, and you found yourself fighting for the inclusion of any West Coast artists in those pages outside of hieroglyphics? I mean, it was really all the time, and it wasn't even just like arguing to keep California in the magazine, but just arguing to keep underground hip hop in the magazine, period, because they just didn't they just didn't have an understanding. Like I remember when I put C Ray's walls in the column and he was on Def Jux and I had to art and I got him a tiny piece of paper. Like it wasn't even, it was maybe a quarter of a page or a half a page. I had to fight for that. And I think they just didn't understand like that there were independent labels that were not street labels that had money even you know i understood that they were basically doing advertorial without telling people they were doing advertorial but def jux had plenty bread at that time and they had plenty of big records and you know they maybe wouldn't have paid the same rate as like um a priority records or one of the major labels but they could have paid an independent rate the same way that the like little street labels or those weird ads that were always in the back of the source for like fake hip-hop jewelry and shit like that like you know, they did have money to spend on ads. So it was just kind of like this attitude against, really against like the culture. That's how I always felt because anything that was, I had to fight for Immortal Technique. I had to fight so hard for Immortal Technique who was huge at the time. And I actually had Rodan from Monster Island Czars Mm. um, who was Jade One. He was one of the original KMD members before they signed to Electra. And then he later moved on to uh, become a member of Monster Island's Ours. And then he went solo. I had Rodan write that immortal technique piece because he's just such a good writer. And I said, well, him writing raps is going to translate into journalism. Um, and he wrote it under a pen name and he killed it, but I had to fight, um, you know, to keep anything like that relevant and anything with graffiti or anything with a Zulu anniversary or a Rocksteady anniversary, anytime there were these actual hip hop events that were happening in New York, I had to either spend my own money to photograph them or I had to spend my own money to get there and get back and then pitch it after the fact and try to somehow force it into the magazine or like a profile on Crazy Legs or whatever it was, anything to do with the actual actual elements, anything to do with the actual culture, anything mm. to do with real hip hop shit. They just were like, no, that's not going to, nobody cares about that. I'm like, okay, well then why don't you guys change the spine of this magazine? Why do we have this conversation every time about how you are saying that this magazine is the Bible of hip hop culture? Just change right. it. Just say you're a rap magazine out to make money and sit down somewhere and, and be that because you saying all this stuff is lip service, you know? 
And so it was always a fight. And regionally too, you know, there, I had a column where the only, I was really the only part of the magazine. Um, and I was supposed to go to other territories and do coverage. And like, I went to Puerto Rico, I went to Anchorage, Alaska. Anchorage, Alaska was a crazy trip. And I uh, covered Joker, the bail bondsman and the whole Alaskan scene there. Um, but that was like relegated to this column. And this column was meant basically like, this is a catch-all kind of almost like a trash can for the rest of the country. And by the time I was at the source, it was, this was ridiculous to me by the time I was at the source, because by this time there was rap and hip hop coming out of every state and not only every state, but me coming every from stress. Country. Yeah. Me coming from stress. I had this background where, you know, I had profiled like the best rapper in Spain and I had done right. a profiles of um, DJ fat Philly in Croatia. And I knew all these cats who were doing like DJing and producing and throwing these jams in Tokyo and Yokohama. And so I'm at the source trying to tell them like, Hey, why don't we do Canada? Why don't we do Croatia? Why don't it's huge what they're doing on the scene and forget about like some London hip hop. Like they weren't even trying to hear it. They just couldn't even see their way. Maybe, you know, at that time, things from Cali, it, if it was a major artist from Cali or like when Raz Kaz was on priority and priority was going to place an ad, there was no arguing about that. That was going to get in somehow. It might not have gotten reviews and mics, but something was going to happen with that Raz Kaz record when he was on a major. Remember, a lot of times it was the major that made the difference. And it was really the ad mm -hmm. money that was going to become available to them that made the difference. But on the, you know, on the flip side of that, part of the reason why there was no room in the publication for a lot of this stuff that was so credible and should have just automatically been included was the Benzino thing. And the fact that like, while I was there, I had people from his crew coming up to me and, you know, people telling me, oh, you got to take out, like I would have finished something from my column. And remember, my column is supposed to be underground. We're talking about backpack rap, underground right. hip hop. Like, so they would be like, okay, well, you're going to have to delete one of those. Get rid of that one that you did about the thing that's coming out on Def Jux because Benzino's homeboy has this album and we're going to do that. <laughs> this, this happened. This thing, this thing happened a lot. And also something that yeah. happened a lot was I would get a phone call and I would always know that it was one of these people and they were mm. trying to, co you know, coerce me to listen to their stuff or to, to somehow put them in the magazine. And I could always tell when they called that this was one of these people where someone was going to come up to me later and tell me like, oh, hey, yeah, that's Zeno's folks or uh, Dave says that you need to cover that one or whatever the case may be. And sometimes these people offer me money. I don't know if this one particular one that stands out to me was affiliated with Zeno somehow or not, because I turned it down immediately. And in hindsight, I shouldn't have. But this cat offered me 15,000 K in American dollars to put him in the magazine. He was like, I don't care where you put me in. I don't care how you put me in. I'll come meet you right now and give you this in cash if you put me in the magazine. Crazy. When you say these people, are we talking about the almighty RSO? Well, no, not necessarily them, because by that time they were using a different name or whatever. And Zeno was recording as a, as a, as a solo artist, but 
it was this crew of people that he had that he ran with and people from Boston um, and they would be up at the magazine and they were there all the time and they kind of like damn near, you know, lived up there and they were part of the, you know, they were part of the cloth of the, of the magazine and, and, and it was just something that you got used to of them being there all the time. And I actually met Zeno's father. His father was actually an enforcer for the mafia or the mob or whatever you'd like to call it there in Boston. And his father actually was like a gangster for real. So when I met him, I was like, okay, I can kind of see like how this trickles down into these kind of like behaviors or whatever. But the thing about it that you have to remember is that I come from real gangs, LA street gangs. And so in New York, I still held that same mentality. And this is me being a woman, being a girl and being out by myself. And I never even owned a gun in New York ever in my life, but I never tucked my chain in New York. I never, um, I never kowtowed to anything that, you know, Zeno's crew of people said to do or not to do. I never had any fear anywhere I was. I was in New York during the the main portion of the alleged, you know, East Coast versus West Coast beef. And I was in Queensbridge with Tragedy Gaddafi outside on the benches and during the time that LALA was happening and all that stuff. And every time he would introduce me to people, he would say, you know, this is MJ. She's from LA. She's a journalist and she's out here and she's doing this and that. But, you know, I wasn't scared. There was a lot of people, men, from LA and from the Bay who were afraid and they said, Oh, you shouldn't go to New York. I was like, well, I'm not, I'm not afraid. I'm not scared. And I never was shook and I would be out and I would be literally in the street, like really out in Queensbridge. I worked for tragedy for years and I never felt, I just never felt fear, you know? And I noticed that, especially in the magazines, there were a lot of cats who kind of like came from, you know, they came from like a street background in New York. But when it came down to stuff like that, they might have, they might not have been afraid like streetwise, but they were afraid job-wise. And I never was right. afraid about that either. I always was like, okay, you know, you you don't like what I'm saying and you don't want to, you know, you don't want to go in the direction that I'm saying we should go in. That's fine. But you're going to be respectful about it when you talk to me. You're not going to, you know, you're not going to be disrespectful to me in an office meeting because I'll turn over a table and throw a chair quick quick in here. And I think people, I had that reputation. There was this guy from platform who called me the terrorist journalist and it wasn't because Muslim. It was because I told him one time he hadn't paid me. And I was like, I have money to get on a flight to New York and I'll come to your office and flip over every furnishing in there. And I wasn't threatening him because I wasn't saying I was going to hurt him, but I was going to hurt his office, Mm -hmm. you know, and he paid me. Um, And so, you know, I also learned that that worked and it worked for me. And when I left the source and they hadn't paid, they owed me money and I'd got a lawyer, first of all, but in addition to getting a lawyer, I called Chad and I said, you know, these cats at the source are tripping and I don't work there anymore and they're owing me some money. And he was like, don't say, say less. And he went and brought Queensbridge up to the office. And the next morning when I woke up, there was money under my door. What was the typical meeting at the source like during those years? Like an argument, like everything would be kind of like us versus them. And there were a number of editors who were like me, like Fahim Ratcliffe, um, who actually was my intern and former student. And he ended up becoming my boss because there was already a woman as editor in chief, which was Kim Osario. And she came from like a very, 
industry background. Um, and then we had a woman um, as the managing editor, Adela Francis. And so when I went on, I should have been offered the culture editor position, but they told me straight up, they were like, yeah, no, it's too many women in powerful editorships here. They're, they don't want that. They want you to be, you know, they want you to be the talent and like be a worker. They don't want you to be in charge because they already feel like there's too many women in charge. So they, they were gave scared my, of that. Yeah. So they gave my student the job that should have been for me. And then he became my boss. Um, and he was very good. It's nothing, no dig against him, but it's just that I had the resume and I had the, I had the real credential to really do it. And I really should have been culture editor because when I wasn't working, I was going to the hall of fame graffiti events. I was running with the Kings of graffiti bombing from the sixties and seventies, like Lord Scotch Keel was one of my best friends. And I was religiously at graffiti events because coming from stress, working with Ket, you know, graffiti is part of my life and it's part of what yeah. it, I, I mean, I, before I even started covering it, but I don't do hip hop uh, without talking about graffiti because graffiti came before rap and before, de before all the other elements, it started first. And I don't do, yeah. I don't do these kind of things where they're like, oh no, yeah, you can only talk about the rap and the beats. And then we don't deal with the, the break dancing and we don't deal with the graffiti art. And how do you not, it's part of the culture. So I deal with it, you know, and the, the meetings were like that, that like there was half the people there were like there for money and they were there for status and they were there for what doors would open for them at clubs and parties and concerts and what they could get free out of being in the industry. And, you know, for some of the women, they were there because who could they meet that they could, um, you know, date or that they could somehow get in some kind of financial relationship with. Um, or maybe eventually could they marry an artist or could they meet someone in the industry that they could end up with that could end up taking them out of the workforce. A lot of the women there kind of, some of the women there, they kind of were there for that. So it was like an argument between those half of the people and those of us that were really there to cover hip hop and the people that were like genuine music nerds. And we really didn't feel comfortable like having to carve out all this space for this whack shit that was either included because of the connection to Zeno or Maze or because of the connection of their label paying a lot of money. Like, excuse me, the biggest thing I did at the source was the Ashanti cover. I had to put Ashanti on the cover of the source. I had to interview Ja Rule. I had to go to Miami and interview her in person and her mother and interview Irv Gotti and I had to go to the studio and listen to her record and I had to write this you know it was my only time up until then that I had ever been given a cover and I had to write that that's what I had to put on the cover of a hip-hop magazine I was Crazy. gutted I was gutted that that was my first and one of my only covers um, and I tried to come up with an angle that at least was journalistic and telling something new about this basic bitch. And I found out that her grandparents were involved in the civil rights movement in Long Island, which is where she's from. So I did a whole research and asked her and her mother questions about that and wrote up this whole thing. And it was part of the introduction and it was cut from the story. They didn't want that. Wow. They, wanted me, they wanted me to talk about her fucking Irv Gotti. And they wanted me to talk about rumors about her mother being a, being kind of running around the industry, having sex with younger men and it being on videotape. And all those things are true, by the way. Let me sip my drink. But that's what they wanted me to cover was a lot of <laughs> gossip, a lot of gossip and, and thing like right. that. And I didn't, I've already felt like, damn, 
The only time I get to write an in-depth article for this shit, it's about Ashanti. And we're calling mm. her the princess of hip-hop and R&B. Ugh. <laughs> How awful. How awful. And the only thing the only thing that makes it any better in hindsight is that I did get to do another cover. And although it was from a negative perspective, it was the jail issue, quote unquote, I got to write the cover story for Slick Rick and Keo, Lord Scotch, went to school with him since the very early like days of short pants and tapping out the beat on the on the table in the lunchroom together you know they go back 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 so Keo actually brought me up to the Bronx and it was me Lord Scotch Slick Rick and his uh, partner Mandy and we all ate together and I was able to interview him and I had met Dana Dane before with Keo and I had actually cooked dinner for Keo and Dana Dane and so I already had that background of having talked to Dana Dane and Keo about their school days with Rick Um, but that was a big honor you know, and I had met him at um, a couple events and things, but it was a big honor for me to sit down and, you know, as a little girl in LA, um, Slick Rick was one of my favorite artists and he was very big on K-Day and I never got to see him perform and I never got to meet him in person back in those days in the eighties, but I was a huge fan. And, you know, to get to sit down at at a dinner table with him and his wife and his old friend, I got access to him that someone else wouldn't have been able to get. And I, th- if someone else had written that cover story on Slick Rick, it would have been all about the jail part and all about him being deported and only about that part. And I just barely touched on those things and tried to make it like a true article and story with journalistic integrity about Rick and his legacy and his importance and how him being, um, you know, from England, um, impacted when he did get arrested and did go to jail. And then when he was trying to come home and they were trying to send him back, uh, permanently to the UK and all this stuff, like, you know, that's what he was dealing with at that time. They were trying to, trying to deport him. Um, and so, you know, I, that's the only saving grace when it comes to the source. It's the only reason why I have any like good, good feeling or good memory about the whole experience was just because I got to do that. And because I thought his cover story came out, you know, so great. And it was literally the last thing I did there. Um, And so, you know, that's really like, in a nutshell, it was like the hip hop kids versus the rap kids in there pretty much is how I would explain it. And the rap kids were just there to try to see how much money they could get by selling out as hard as they could. And we were there knowing that we were barely making a living. And we were watching all these other people get paid all this money because they were willing to kiss the ass and willing to play this whole game. And they didn't care about the content or the culture at all. They didn't care about the art form at all. And we were there really to like hold it down. And I knew when I left that, you know, that I was going to be leaving a big hole in that regard. And it really started crumbling. And soon after that, it was gone. L.A., L.A., big city of dreams, but everything in L.A. ain't always what it seems. You might get fooled if you come from out of town, cause we coming from Queens, it gets down. L.A., L.A., big city of dreams, but everything in L.A. ain't always what it seems. You might get fooled if you come from out of town. What's the story behind you becoming executive assistant for John Baker and working with G Street Records during their seminal years in the mid-90s? 
Well, I was working at a magazine here in Oakland called 4080, um, which was a renowned rap magazine here in those 90s. And I was uh, sharing office space with a recording studio called The Grill. A plus got me this job. Um, so I was being the office manager of two companies. The magazine was downstairs. The recording studio was upstairs. Upstairs, we had Tupac, Richie Rich, Too Short. Master P would bring artists um, from his label to come record. Mac Mall, Mac Dre, like the cream of the Bay Area gangster rap scene was recording. And the magazine was covering a lot of that music. So I was downstairs in the magazine part. The phone rang. And it was Zenobia Simmons, who was a publicist for Penalty Recordings. And she was calling about 187 Fat. Um, they were kind of a gangster rap group that somehow strangely was on Penalty out of New York. At this time, A-plus was the number one Capone Noriega fan. He was crazy about the war report. And if he came to your house or studio or you went to his, he was not going to listen to anything else but the war report. I had been listening to the war report on repeat and I knew every lyric from top to bottom. So when she called and she asked about 187 fat, I said, well, that might, that might work for the magazine. You know, let me talk to the publisher and the editors, but I said, what's up with CNN? She was like, oh, you know about CNN? I said, oh, we love CNN. I told her the story of how A-plus put me on and how I had bought the album and was like top in my rotation. And I thought that they were just tremendous. And, you know, I was always a big intelligent hoodlum fan. So I was a Gaddafi fan. And she was like, oh, she's like, you know, the whole, she know everything about the group. She's like, well, she's like, Capone's in jail, actually. And I said, okay, that's fine. I said, I do jail letters. I, I do jail phone calls. Give me his address. And I wrote to Capone and we wrote back and forth and we started talking on the phone and, um, I said, you know, I would like to somehow do an interview with you for a magazine. Um, I said, not necessarily 4080, but I would just like to do it and then pitch it and see, you know, see what I could get going with it. Because I was freelancing at that time. And we were in talks about it and I was working out, you know, financially how to cover the trip. And my brother lived in Brooklyn at the time. So I said, well, I'll just probably be able to go stay with my brother. So Capone disappeared and I didn't hear from him and he didn't call and I didn't get a letter. And I found out he was in um, the box or uh, solitary confinement right? and that they had taken away all his privileges. And I had gotten some money that was owed to me. And so um, I called up Safir's sister, who was one of my best, best friends at the time. And I told her, can you come get the keys to my apartment and just you know, um, maybe I might, I might not come back. So maybe, you know, keep whatever you want to of the furniture and the music and stuff. And then the rest, you can just leave there or empty out or however you want to do it. But I might come back. I might not. She was like, where are you going? I said, I'm going to go to New York. So just on a whim, I bought a ticket. I was like a Thursday and I got there the next day and I had never been to New York in my life. And I, figured out how to get around on the train. And I brought my things to my brothers in Brooklyn and I left in the evening and I went to Times Square and I figured out how to do the prison bus. And I got on the bus in Times Square and it was a 54 hour trip through upstate New York, 54 hours round trip. So think half of that on the bus, then you get out, you do your visit, the visit's like an hour and a half, and then you get back on the bus and take the turnaround trip. And it was snowing 
And I'm a Cali girl. I've never been, you know, this is 96. I've never been in the snow like that. I've never been to New York. I didn't know anything, but I had, you know, I had a Walkman and I had, um, you know, pen and pad and a couple things that I brought with me. And I just, it was an adventure. And I went and I went to the first visit and I walked in and he couldn't believe. I actually, it's so crazy. Two days ago, my friend brought me the photo from the visiting room. I have the, I have a picture of this picture of me and him in the visiting room. And he was in Clinton Correctional, which is where Tupac was held previous to that. They weren't there at the same time, but it's the same prison. And it's Uh. up in Wyoming, New York, which is right near Attica where the famous riots were. So I'm there unofficially, you know, just as a visitor, as far as they know, I'm just a visitor with a, with a California ID. And so I visited him a few times and I took that, took that bus trip a few times and I wasn't able to get any press access and I wasn't able to get pictures or anything like that. So I used these little golf pencils that they would give um, out at the visits. Like if you needed to write something down or, and I had napkins uh, because they had little food and vending machines there. So they would provide napkins. And I wrote the whole interview out on napkins with a golf pencil during these jail visits. Um, And I took the trip at least four times. And then I had decided to stay in New York because my brother had the big apartment with all these roommates. And he was like, we can definitely get you a room in here if you want to just stay. So I opened up the phone book and I picked out the very first employment agency. It was like a one employment, called them up, sent them my resume by that. In that time, it was a fax, fax to my resume. And the next day they called and they said, oh, we have a job for you. They really are interested in your background and your resume. Have you ever heard of G street records? And I was like, wow. Yeah. And I tried to be unimpressed because I wanted them to just send me on this assignment. <laughs> so they sent me and I met um, Zena, X-I-N-A, Zena, and she was John's um, executive assistant and kind of the office manager and kind of like just the cheerleader of the whole label. And um, she was having a back surgery. It was very serious. And she was going to be out for a, a long time, at least months. Um And, you know, we only had one day together. She taught me everything she could in one day. And she told me, you know, John is, is a little bit of a hothead. He's going to scream at you. And there's going to be some times where you'll think this is insane. Let me get out of here. But, you know, just know that he's a nice man. He's a generous man. And the music here is great. And there's a lot of perks and just, you know, remember that it's not personal. He doesn't hate you. He's just kind of, you know, going to, he's going to scream and yell and maybe throw things and just be prepared for that. And I was like, okay, you know, I'm familiar. Like I've worked plenty of times in the music industry. and I've seen a lot of, a lot of hotheads. So it wasn't, this was my first time with a British hothead, but other than that, nothing was different. (laughs) And from day one, you know, it was crazy. Like the second day I was there, um, John asked me, you know, did I know my way around? And I said, yeah, you know, a bit, I can figure it out. And he was like, okay, well, I need you to take these papers over to 25 to life. And they're down um, over, you know, in that direction. And he wrote the address and he said, these are legal papers. They need to be signed. And I need them back, you know, by the end of the day. And then we have some more work to do. So you'll stay late in the evening. I'll have my limo driver take you home. And I was like, okay, sounds fine. So it was snowing. So I walked in the snow and I got into the office and Sincere and Screwdriver were there. And they... um were like the radio promo and street promo guys and they were playing this record. And so I was like, I have some papers here. And I was like, I need the owner to sign. And they were like, yeah, he's out. Um, he's out right there. He'll be back in one second. And so I turn around and tragedy 
comes climbing in from out of the snow through like um, a balcony. He was out there smoking a cigarette. He climbs in the window and he had on a like butter Ava Rex. And I'm like, oh shit. I was like, it's, it's trash. And he was like, he was like, yeah. He's like, oh, you're the earth from California. And he was like, you're here visiting Capone and da, da, da. And I was like, yeah, how do you know that? And he was like, come here. And he took me outside. He gave me a lot of hundred dollar bills and he told me keep some and give some to Capone. And he was like, how did you find me? What are you doing? What are you doing up here? How'd you find me? I, I, I can't, I'm, I'm so happy to meet you. Da, 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 da. And I was like, John Baker sent me and I was like, I have these legal papers for you. <laughs> and he was like, what John Baker? He's like, how, how does John Baker? Hey, what, how do you know him? And I was like, I told him, I said, yeah, I just re just started working there. And I just right. came here from LA and I'm like in Oakland and I'm just, I'm just here. And I, and now I, ha now I live here in Brooklyn and now I work for John. And he was like, okay, well now you work for me. <laughs> and he kept me and I worked for Qaddafi long after I left G street. Um, but it was like, that connection was there. And then we had Afura and we had Gravediggers and Rizzo mm. was always there. And we had, it was Fruquan. And when Fruquan came, I kind of knew the makeup of the Gravediggers, but I was like, uh, that's Fruquan. That's he's that's, that's a Sonic. And when Prince Paul came, I was like, oh, wow, this is really, and we had Kimani Marley. And so like just there being a Marley and him coming with his managers. And at the time he was going to be singing the, um, uh, the Jamaican national anthem at the um, world cup and, or, a, or maybe a preliminary of the world cup. And so him and his management came to discuss that. And I was just like, I can't believe Bob Marley's son is here. Like, wow. Um, and then because Rizzo was there all the time, we had just a variety of different Wu-Tang members coming in and out. And so like, I remember one night I was there working really late and KP Killer Priest came in and I guess he, had just came from the studio with Jizza and he had this record and he was, he was like, I'm, he was like, I want you to hear this shit and I'm going to play this. And I was like, okay. And it was Bible. Life is a test and a quest to universe. And through my research, I felt the joy and I heard the first of the last and the last of the first. The basic structures before leaving Earth. Life is a test and a quest to universe. And through my research, I felt the joy and I heard the first of the last and the last of the first. The basic structures before leaving knowledge, just wisdom. This goes back when I was. Wow. Yeah, exactly. Wow. And so, you know, we had PM Dawn, uh, we had Chub Rock, we had Afura, we had Tragedy, um, we had uh, this R&B singer called Olu, not Olu Dara Nas's father, but just Olu one word. Um, and we had Amber Sunshower. And a lot of these acts that I'm saying were huge in the UK, in America at the time. PM Dawn, people were not checking for PM Dawn anymore in America, but they were selling out Wembley. We had to do a second day at freaking at Wembley. Come on now. And um, the jungle, we had Jungle Brothers. And so it was literally a who's who. And then V2 was the owning company. And so G Street, we were on one side. And V2 was on the other across the hall. And so sometimes, you know, I knew every genre of music and every style and type of music. And I was listening to everything. I was never just only knowing about hip hop or rap. And I, you know, when Moby came into the office and I saw him walking in the other direction, I was like, uh, John, I need, I'll be back. I need to go get, a, get some tea and coffee. I'll be back. I'm going to be right back. 
And I just, I just went over there and I just started walking up and just talked to him for a minute. Cause I was still at that time I was chefing on the side and I was a vegetarian almost all my life. And I was starting to get into veganism and I really wanted to talk to Moby about vegan shit. And so I just went over there and just talked to him real quick. And sometimes other Marley's would come in and go in that direction. And anytime I saw a Marley, I'd be like, you know, I'll be right back. I have to just go to <laughs> I'll be right back. Sorry. Yeah, just give me a moment. Um, and so like, you know, John had offices in England still, and then he had this office in, but it was in fourth and Broadway. So that was the other thing about it was that the building itself, Russell Simmons lived in the penthouse. So every day, invariably sometime throughout the day, I would ride in the elevator with fucking Russell Simmons. And then Tower Records was right across the street. So if I wasn't, if I wasn't working or chatting with Russell or he, sometimes he would invite me to breakfast or we would have a quick coffee or a tea or something, same thing. We talked about yoga. We talked about um, vegetarianism and veganism and healthful foods. And, you know, we, we always had these talks about, about that aspect because he was always see me carrying like a green juice or something. And this would be way, we're talking 10, 15 years before that type of thing became popular. Um, and it was just mad. It was mad. And then if, if it wasn't people that were already affiliated at G Street, it was that I would be going over to Tower for whatever reason, like on my lunch break. And then I would see like Parrish Smith and walking and he would have like all these people with him and I would get introduced or just any, pretty much any, this was like the epicenter of the music yeah. industry at that time in New York. And I met everyone and got to work with everybody and it was incredible and it was all on a total fluke of me buying that plane ticket to go to those penitentiary visits my brother already having a place me being able to stay and opening that phone book and calling that very first agency it was really meant by fate you mentioned hearing bible of course for the first time by Priest and jizza what was your reaction at that time I just thought it was an incredible record. I just thought it was really dope. It wasn't mixed. I think they had literally just come from the studio. Um, and I didn't know what it was for. And KP was not on the label. He just, you know, was in that cipher of people. And probably he had come up with Dreddy or come up with RZA or come up with somebody, you know, there were always, um, invariably, there were always like cats related to Wu-Tang coming in and out. Um, and so sometimes there would be 20 of them. And then sometimes there would be just two and they didn't necessarily have an appointment or a meeting with John or they just kind of would cruise. It was kind of like, you know, their hangout spot or a place they knew, oh, there's women there, there's food, there's coffee and tea. Sometimes there's weed, sometimes there's beer. So I think they just kind of like, were like, okay, we'll stop in here. Um, yeah. And so it was just totally random. And he asked me if I had a, a box and I just went and got a little uh, CD player from the radio promoter's office and we played the record and he played it a few times. And I just said, I thought it was brilliant. And, um, and I left and I didn't realize until much later um, when it came out, what exactly it was. Cause it was a very rough. Um, it wasn't even the whole song. It was just his rap. Incredible. What kind of impact did those years have on the way you dealt with things moving forward? Well, first of all, you know, it taught me that, the epicenter of music and business and the business of music and particularly the industry at the high levels is New York. And also that it's a global epicenter and that if I could stay in New York as long as possible, 
that I would make an edge for myself because not a lot of people were willing to leave LA. They were used to the weather. They were used to the lifestyle and they were used to the cleanliness and comparatively, the amazingly, the lower prices. And people weren't ready for New York. New York was very hard and very fast. And I had that in me already because I grew up with my father and because I grew up with my grandfather and because I already was used to working seven days a week and working nights and not even thinking twice about it. Whereas other people who came from California, either to visit or to try to work, they never could last. And they always left soon because they couldn't take the pace. But I felt like a workaholic and I felt like I had so many, you know, my toes were in so many different ponds and I was doing so many different things. And if a magazine job fell apart, I could go over to a label or I could consult or I could do, um, you know, once the things at the source fell apart, I started to do some of the other things that would eventually prevent me from being hired as a journalist, even though they never should have prevented. But, you know, I understood what I was doing when I did it, becoming a consultant for publicity and promotions and press and media. Um, you know, like sometimes I did those things for Doom uh, in the earlier parts of his career before he had um, people to do that for him or before labels were hiring those for him. I would just do it even though I was his business manager, you know, if it had to get done, I did it. But I never ever wrote an article about Zoom or pitched one or tried to present myself as anything other than his representative. So to me, you know, it didn't uh, violate any principles. And even to this day, you know, I have a blog and I work with so many artists now who pay me on my blog. When I do journalistic articles, I've done a couple on Husk Kingpin and I did one recently uh, on an artist from out here named Big Daddy Chop, who's a Mexican, Mexican American artist. He's really dope and young. I think he's going to be a, I think he's really going to break out and be a star. And I wrote those because Big Daddy Chop is not my client. He's never paid me money. Has Kingpin is not my client. He's never paid me money. I can do a fully journalistic and appropriate article about them because of that. There's no bias. No one's paying me. There's no money crossing my hands. I'm not even being paid to write those articles. They're for my blog, um, for Medium. But, you know, I, I'm I'm very gifted at the craft. And so I love to write and I love to do what I used to do for pay. It's hard because it's a way that I used to make a living. So it's difficult to wake up and, and do like a very in-depth researched piece about someone when you know there's no paycheck at the end of it, you know, and then sourcing the photographs and gathering it all together and then also editing and copy editing and all those things. Yeah. But, you know, I do believe in journalistic integrity and I've never crossed, I've never crossed lines, um, you know, but people just don't, I think people, because most people will do anything for money, they assume um, that that's the case. And they assume that I wouldn't have integrity or that I can no longer be a journalist because I have worked as a publicist or as a press agent or as a promoter or whatever, whatever have you. Um, but I, you know, I know the line and I'm, I keep the line, even when it's to my detriment, even though when it means I'll make less money, money is not the major factor for me at all. 
you know, when I was, um, when I was with Doom doing his business management, um, and A&R and other, you know, pretty much anything that was needed road management, there's a million hats that I wore working with and working for Dumale. Um, he wasn't doing well financially. And the things that led to big finance for him later down the path, a lot of those things, I am the person who began those relationships and began those negotiations and began those conversations and opened those doors. And, you know, he was very, um, he was very lesser known in those days. He was, had done Operation Doomsday. And a lot of people knew that record, but at that point, it was pretty much entirely unknown that he was also Zev Love X, and it was also the same guy from KMD, and he had only done that record. Mm. And so he had only had that record re-released and had uh, KMD re-releases happening over there with Subverse. That's when he and I uh, got together and began uh, working together and spending a lot of time together and doing all these projects. But with Doom, I worked with him on not only Mad Villain, which is be that record even happened solely because of me. And that's a huge deal and ordeal. But I also worked with him on mm, Food and I worked with him on the King Ghidorah record that came out with Ninja Tune and Big Data, um, Take Me to Your Leader. And I worked Classic. with him on the, on the Vic Vaughn records with, at Sounding. Um, and for the most part, a lot of those, a lot of the beats for those albums were made in my house. And a lot of them came from my records. Wow. A lot of the samples came from my records. And a lot of the raps that he wrote at that time were from books on my shelf or derived from conversations that he and I had. And though that run for him, that run is huge. He was prolific after that. But he never had all those records all at once where he was in progress on everything at one time before then or after them, that time. That was all because it was me and Doom. And that's what nobody can understand because they weren't there. And people love to downplay my role in all of it. And oftentimes my role went uncredited. And oftentimes my role went unpaid. But I knew I was already involved in the music industry in New York at the upper echelon. I had already started Complex and I had already had the experience at the source. And I had already worked with all of these majors that had offices in LA and New York. I was able to open doors in the actual music industry and the publishing industry and the fashion industry. Because since I did start Complex with a few other people, I'm the person who made Complex acceptable amongst high-level fashion companies. They didn't want to fuck with anything that was Echo. We had to make something new that was funded by Echo. And we had to convince people that it was luxury when Echo was clearly the opposite. And that in and of itself led me to be able to go to Nike or Gucci or the North Face or Timberland or any of those companies because they knew me from mm. having started Complex and making the introduction between them and the fashion people at Complex and the advertising people at Complex. They knew me for putting hip hop artists in their clothing and in their styles. And then they knew me from pulling again 
at the source and working with the fashion department at the source and putting putting them in big articles with big artists where their name might have been left out Kangol, Timberland, the North Face, you know, the, the people there knew me. And so when we went to a big Nike party, I said, okay, I could go by myself or I could bring, you know, an already established rapper or ghostwriter or somebody who's like running around in these circles already. I said, you know what, let me bring Doom. So there was this like exclusive Nike company party and it was like um, they were giving a shoe and it was like some very limited shoe and we had to provide the size. So instead of giving my size, I gave Dooms huh. and we went and it was he and I, and there was a Chinese gentleman and we were sitting with him the whole night drinking champagne. And the whole night it was just like at this Nike thing and Nike people kept coming up once they realized kind of who Doom was and then my affiliation. Right. And stuff. So they kept coming up. And also I didn't realize at the time who he was, but at the end of the night, I realized that he was the Shifu. Um, Shin Yang, and he's the person who taught um, martial arts to RZA and Rosie Perez and Wesley Snipes and Jizza and the Shaolin. He's the Shaolin monk who defected from China and opened a Shaolin temple in America. That's who me and Doom were drinking with all night. <laughs> That's incredible. What kind of conversation did you guys have? Mostly, we talked about sparkling, uh, sparkling wine, and sparkling. He was calling it special water. He was calling the champagne special water, and we talked about like drinking, and you know, because Doom was a huge drinker, um, and I was not much of a drinker, and that's what Sifu was saying was that it's you know part of balance um, and part of health that sometimes you have some special water, and then he would ask them to bring more champagne. Um, <laughs> so basically, you, I don't think the Shaolin monk often has a chance to get drunk with, you know, doom and this lady. And so like, we just hung out and talked about martial arts and Buddhism and spirituality. And it was like a very great conversation. Yeah. Like if I ever would have wanted to record a conversation, it definitely would have been that night for sure. And that led to doom's future Nike uh, situations, which I was not involved in, which I was gone by then, which I never received any remuneration for anything like that. But it was the umpteenth time where introductions that I made and a path that I laid for him, for his career, he moved, he went on to connect right. and make these big deals and get bigger and bigger financially and get bigger and bigger in the public eye. Um, and a lot of that is, you know, a lot of it is due to me. And I always, you know, certain clients of mine after they've worked with me for a while or people who who are my friends and we remain in friendships, they always say to me like that what I do is actually like magic or like alchemy because it's not it's not business because I have actually made very little money my whole life. Don't forget, tune in next week for part two of our conversation in which we discuss managing MF Doom and A&R in a cult classic, Mad Villainy. Just lie awake and think of pleasant nights we've spent Under summer's magic spell But when autumn came, her love did not remain And made my world a living hell
I wish I could show my appreciation for this podcast. I wish I could respond to it somehow or be notified in the future when Fly Fidelity updates because it's so great. But I don't think there's a way I can do any of those things. Uh-oh. You're wrong. <laughs> Subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud and never miss an episode. Find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. My peoples, are you with me where you at?